studying for his PhD at Westminster. He'd already done the MDiv, uh, but he has definitely matured a lot as a scholar over the years, as you can tell by the fact that he now has a beard. He's since completed his PhD on the book of Hebrews. So there's a conversation starter. You can ask him who wrote it after the service. And now works at RTSDC right here uh, and as academic dean and professor of New Testament. He's also an expert in uh, uh, metaphor studies, as we all should be. So you can also ask him what that's like afterwards. So without further ado, I'll ask uh, Tommy to come now and pre uh, preach the word of God to us. Thanks, uh, Jamie. And it is indeed uh, Tommy Keene. I am from uh, the great state of Texas, where Tommy is a perfectly respectable name for a grown man. So if you're wondering in these conversations that we're going to have afterwards what to call me, Tommy is perfectly fine. Uh, no, don't have any moral compunctions uh, about that. Uh, and I bring you greetings from Reformed Theological Seminary. I see a lot of uh, familiar faces, both uh, a couple of students and uh, attenders of our women's Bible study and things of that nature. Love to talk more about that as well. But we have business in the Scriptures. So, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. If you are kind of following along in the bulletin and you're, you're noticing Jeremiah, you're noticing this uh, pretty dark parable by Jesus, and uh, you will notice in 2 Peter 3 that it gets dark pretty quickly as well, you might be uh, a little bit discouraged about the prospects for this evening. It sounds like heavy things are afoot, uh, but I uh, have a promise for you, and that that is that Peter in this passage uh, though we are going to talk about the heavy things of the end of the world and final uh, judgment, though he is going to address the cataclysm that is coming when Jesus as king brings judgment upon the earth, uh, Peter, somewhat paradoxically, wants you to be kind of happy about that. Uh, it's this paradox in this passage that so often when you hear kind of like hellfire and brimstone kinds of sermons, the goal is to unsettle you, right? It's to make you question and fear and to tremble and you get nervous and it's kind of like a come to Jesus moment or it's designed to kind of scare you straight or something like that. That's not Peter's purpose at all. He wants to resettle you. He wants you to be more at ease. He wants you to be more comfortable and assured and to have peace. It's a bit of a paradox in uh, this passage, you will see, you yourselves will see the stars bleeding out life. So be happy about that. You know, that's, that's kind of the mode and rule of this passage. As I'm reading it, try to figure out the solution to that riddle, the tension that's there between, on the one hand, this judgment, and on the other hand, that we have what we need. We're well-equipped. We're ready to go not because we ourselves are good, but because our God is good. Second Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him without spot, or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, we pray that you would indeed bless this word to our hearts and to our minds, that we would find here not just an expectation of judgment, but not just terror and trembling, but peace, a calm that comes from knowing that you are a just God and will bring justice and mercy in its time. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's a common trope in fairy stories, in fantasy uh, literature, from George MacDonald to C.S. Lewis to J.R.R. Tolkien. You'll find it in all of the places uh, where The hero, the heroine, they get like a magic key or a sword, a a special powerful sword or a uh, baseball that has magical properties open at the close, they are told. And they're given these special instructions to remember that they have this magic artifact so that when the time comes, they will be able to use it. 
And I'm all there for that. I mean, as soon as the key is given, you know, I know, the author knows, everybody knows that this is the thing. This is the hinge on which the whole story is going to turn. And I'm there for that. It's great. I love it when the story is predictable. And we're just waiting to see how the key fits and unlocks the door at the right time. That's basically 2 Peter. You have what you need. You're on, an adventure, you're, you're on an adventure story. We, the church, are on an adventure story. We're on a quest. We're traveling through dangerous territory, but we have been given by God what we need so that at the proper time, if we can just remember, right? That's what Peter says right there in 3.2. I am wanting to remind you by way of reminder. Like, that is awkward in Greek and in English. There, He's just trying to get the word reminder there twice because he wants you to remember that you have the key, that you have something that you need at the proper time. We're going on a journey, we're on a quest, and we have the key. Those are our two points. You have what you need on the journey that God has put you on, and what you need is scripture. You already have it, and we're going to explore that along those two lines, the quest and the key, this is a Reformation service, so those both have to start with the same letter. I am very sorry to inform you that quest is spelled with a K. It, it just has to be done. I am disappointed too. First then, the quest. We're on a quest. And actually, uh, this quest that we're oh, it's, it's it's a Q. It can't do it. I can't do it. It's a Q. Quest with a Q. We're on a quest. We're on an adventure. We're facing dangerous territory. Uh, Peter himself is part of this story. Peter puts himself, if you back up to 1 Peter chapter 1, I won't make you flip around to all of the scriptures today, but we will be flipping around in, uh, sorry, I said, I said 1 Peter. We'll be flipping around in 2 Peter. If you flip back to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is on his own quest. Actually, your quest is part of Peter's quest. You're on the same quest line. Therefore, I intend always to remind you, there's that word again, uh, remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You have what you need. I think it right, though, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. We get it. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Peter's on a quest. He has a unique call. He has been given a unique job by God himself. See, Peter is a good Jewish Christian thinker. He believes in the sovereignty of God, and so when he thinks about human history, he periodizes it. He packages up into various periods of time. He thinks about the time of creation and the time of Moses and the time of the kings. Um, he thinks about actually all of cosmic history, human history, the, the timeline that he's working with in his head that makes sense of the series of unfortunate events in which we have been placed, he's thinking that there's essentially two different time periods. There's the time of promise and there's the time of fulfillment. That time itself is split in two. 
and that Peter himself is living at the very beginning of the time of fulfillment. Peter believes that the end of all things has happened. The great event that God has been promising the world since the beginning of time, since Adam's fall in fact, since even before Adam's fall, the great event that God has been promising that he would dwell fully and perfectly with his people, that he would send his king to establish his kingdom, that he would deal a death blow to death, that he would bring about what Peter calls in 2 Peter 3, a new heavens and a new earth, an era of life, a resurrection era. Peter believes that that has already happened. The great cosmic event has already taken place. The end of the world has already happened, and it is in fact Peter's job to testify to that event. He tells us about that in uh, 2 Peter, I will keep doing that, forgive me. In 2 Peter 1, we, that is to say, we apostles, we apostles did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his majestic glory. We heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's Peter's job. That's his mission. That's what the apostles were given on this earth to do. They were uniquely qualified to testify about what God has done in Jesus. You actually just read that. I didn't pick any of this, by the way. It's all just wonderful, though. We just read that in the Belgic Confession that God, how did God give to us the words of Jesus? Because Jesus wrote no books. Well, it was committed to writing through the stewardship of this apostolic band. And Peter is about to die. See, Peter rightly sees himself in the course of cosmic history. He knows his role in the overarching storyline. And by the grace of God, it's through the foolishness of preaching, it's a pretty important role. He is uniquely authorized as an apostle to testify to the things that Jesus said and did and to pass them on as the foundation of the church to the next generation. And Peter, he lived well, and he's about to die If we take church history as an indicator here, uh, he and Paul die within, are, are martyred within a week of each other. And with Peter's death, we are witnessing the end of an era. Peter's death isn't an ordinary death, it's an apostolic death. And it's a a representation then, it's a kind of picture of something that's happening to this unique period in time that we call the apostolic period. It is closing. And that's why Peter's writing 2 Peter. It's a kind of last words. The last words of this apostle, maybe the last word of the apostles, although we probably think Revelation is the last word of the apostles. This represents, though, the end of an era, and Peter is looking forward into God's sovereign ordering of all things, and he sees a new era coming, one in which the church, living out the resurrection of Jesus Christ in its body, but living it out in a post-apostolic period. No apostles now to shepherd the church of God. 
No continuing revelation to guide us through tough questions. What will the church do without its apostolic leaders? Without divinely important, without those who saw the Lord and who heard what he said to shepherd the church of God. Peter, to anticipate the answer to this question, we need to make it worse before we make it better, but to uh, ease the mystery here, Peter is saying you have what you need for that. You have the apostolic testimony. You have the scriptures. Peter sees, though, another danger. It's not just that the apostles are dying out and the apostolic period is closing up and that the church now must wait, enter, enter this new era of waiting for the salvation that is yet to be revealed. It's going to do that waiting amidst cosmic enemies. You can read about that in uh, 2 Peter 2. Just to warn you, it gets wild. Uh, and if you would like a little, bit of a, uh, a little bit of help as you process 2 Peter 2 on uh, your own, uh, perhaps, perhaps not tonight. You know, you want to sleep well tonight. So tomorrow, in the light of day, you can read 2 Peter 2. It gets a little crazy. But uh, if you were looking for guidance, uh, the, Peter is giving you a kind of character list, a, tr- a trait list, a types of people that arise to oppose the church. And he talks about the types of people that arise that oppose the church in kind of story form, as metaphors, as pictures. You have this wealth of story available to you in the Old Testament, this wealth of tradition. And he'll say that these people are like Balaam. These people are like Sodom or like Lot struggling against. You're like Lot struggling in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what you're supposed to do uh, in that space is go back to those stories and just sort of live in them for a while, to meditate upon them, and to then map them onto the stories of your life, the people that oppose the church in today's age, and to think about the very, that there's nothing new under the sun, that wickedness has a rhythm to it, that it has an attitude, it has a, a, a type, a, a pattern that it follows, and we see now what we've always seen as Peter puts it in our passage, scoffers will come with scoffing. Peter sees the church entering an apostol- a post-apostolic age, and in that age, it's not just that you aren't shepherded, it's that scoffers come, the opposite of good shepherds, the opposite of faithful witnesses come. That word scoffers, it might not frighten you uh, all that much. Oh no, comedians, you know, what doesn't seem like an immediate threat to the church. But the scoffing that Peter has in mind is of a serious variety. It's important to remember that biblically speaking, all evil ultimately is a function of words. Uh, Peter's going to encourage us. He's going to say, remember the words of your apostles and prophets and of the Lord and Savior. Scoffers are going to come with words. How do you fight words? You fight them with words. A different set of words, biblical words, biblical tradition, biblical truth. These two ideologies, these two worldviews, these two sets of truths are opposed to one another. And actually what the scoffers come, uh, when they come with their scoffing, 
What we're to understand there is the kind of dead, lifeless, nihilistic cynicism that the world has to offer. Most people you encounter believe in something like truth. They might not verbalize it that way, they might not have a big philosophical system to describe it, but they believe in something like truth. The leaders that are described here in 2 Peter 2, they don't. I was thinking about it on my drive here. Actually, I was never more thrilled to be stuck on that bridge on 495. Beautiful fall foliage everywhere. It was like peak fall. And, you know, I could preach my sermon a couple more times. So, great drive for many reasons. And I was thinking about it, and what a terrible thing to be in Jesus' shoes and to hear Pilate the one who has been appointed to judge, the one who has been appointed to discern between right and wrong, the one who's put into his hands by God and by the Romans the task of sorting between who's, the, who's true and who's a liar. To hear from that person, not I think you're wrong, but what is truth? The cynicism goes so deep. It's, it's not even... It's, it's not even that we're opposed in terms of I believe X, you believe Y. Because we can argue about that. We can have a debate. We can do apologetics and things like that. So often, the wickedness, the animalistic desire of the world goes so deep that the end of it is just cynicism. And there is no greater hopelessness in words than that level of nihilistic cynicism. And that's what Peter has in mind here. The scoffers will come with scoffing. The point will not be you're wrong. The point will be, who cares? What is the church going to do? It's lost its shepherds. It's lost its apostolic witness, and scoffers have come to oppose the truth by whatever means necessary. Well, Peter says, you have what you need. When that happens, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Remember that you have the key. I do love all of those fanny store stories because there's this moment where they have forgotten that they have the key, right? And you've actually, it's been so long since you saw the key that you saw the magic sword that you've forgotten that they have the key too. And you're delighted. Oh, here's the key. I need the key. And everybody realizes at the same moment and with the same level of excitement, I actually have the key. And you look at the key and you think it's too small for this. It's, too, it's not strong enough for this task. It's too old. It's an old, rusty key. It's not up to cosmic enemies. It can't help a church in which no, God no longer directly speaks to us. 
Peter says, no, this is, this is the moment. This is the time. This is what the key was made for. And the key is Scripture itself. Uh, the word Scripture doesn't occur here in uh, 3.2, but it's all over the place. It, remember that we're right, Peter's writing in a time, it's just at the end of this time, but he's writing in a time which, in which Scripture is still being Produced. He, in fact, references this later on in verses 15 and 16. In 3.16, continuing to prove that all 3.16s are good, right? Every 3.16 passage in the Bible is good. It's, 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 it's fact. Uh, he, references Peter, he references Paul's letters as Scripture. There are things that are hard to understand, and you can take comfort in that. Paul, Peter and Paul are not telling you that you need to understand every aspect, every nook and cranny of your key in order to find it to be useful, but it is useful and it is scriptural and it is from God. As it's described here in 3.2, it's your Lord and Savior through your apostles. We've got three actually speakers here. We've got the holy prophets those are probably, that's probably Peter's way of talking about the whole Old Testament. If you gave a, um, a, a Jewish Christian a way of talking, they don't, they don't use the term Old Testament. Uh, they use things like the scriptures or the law and the prophets or just the prophets can be, can be just referring to everything, whether it's strictly prophecy or the books of the Torah or Psalms, all of that gets uh, described as prophets. So these holy prophets are probably Peter referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament, and you'll find this consistently in the New Testament, that when the New Testament refers to itself as Scripture, as, as, a, as a canon of writing, it will do things like this. Your apostles and prophets, or the word of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You can see the author of Hebrews doing that in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus spoke no uh, Jesus spoke lots of words, but he wrote no books, and so he appointed and trained apostles to pass along his teaching, and the two are treated as of equal authority. The, when Peter writes it this, just this way, the words of the Lord through your apostles, he's affirming both the authority, he's, he's affirming the authority of this body of work as both from Jesus and from the apostles. To receive apostolic word is to receive the very words of Jesus. And to receive the words of Jesus is to receive the apostolic word. In other words, the church over these several decades has been given what it needs. It's actually not true that we still don't have, that we don't anymore have apostolic shepherding. We do. It's here in the Word of God, in Scripture itself. Scripture itself is equipped with the power and authority of Christ to reveal to us what we need when the enemies come to break down the doors of the church. It's through the apostolic Word that Jesus equips His church so that the gates of hell might not prevail against it. This is the bulwark, this is the foundation. This is the solution in whatever area, whatever problem, whatever issue that we face as God's church, whatever new philosophy or scientific discovery. By the way, Christianity is the foundation of science. It's not opposed to science, and yet those two are sometimes so often treated as opposed to one another in our world. 
Whenever new discovery, whenever new philosophy comes down our way, we have what we need in the Bible to be creative proclaimers of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I've got the key. I've got the wisdom and the humility to use it. I know when I need it, and I know to use the key, but what door does it unlock? What does it do? What does it tell me? How does it actually, let's get down to practical brass tacks. How does it actually help? Does it give me propositions to throw back at my opponents? Oh, you, you believe A. Well, the Bible says not A, so we're done here. Well, Peter tells us that too. He tells us what the scriptures were given to do, what they're supposed to accomplish, the way in which they equip us to face our enemy. We don't have to wait until they get used to find out. This is where Peter breaks the mold of the fairy story. You, you know, the, the, the heroine doesn't know what the key is for until she uses it. Peter tells us at the very beginning in the thesis statement of 2 Peter what the key is designed to do. We've already read, he said, he intends to remind you of these qualities. And I skipped this part because I was waiting to reveal it now. Uh, what are the qualities that the scripture, that he's trying to remind us to cultivate? What are the qualities that scripture itself teaches? It's right there in 1.5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's the door that the key opens, love. In scholarly circles, we call uh, this, uh, this structure, this uh, thematic structure that you get in 2.5 through, uh, through uh, 7, we call this a list. And it's a list that culminates, thanks for laughing, it's a list that culminates at a particular point it's a, it's a list that crescendos, right? You, you kind of feel moved along, right? You feel like this is, there's this gradual increase in significance and importance. And Peter ends this list, this list of virtues that we're supposed to cultivate. It's almost like a ladder to love, from faith to love. What Peter wants us to do is to, we are, by faith, saved. And faith, its goal, its telos, its ultimate fruit is love. Scripture is training in love. We're told to remember the words of Jesus, the words of the prophets, the words of your apostles. Where did the apostles and Jesus and the prophets tell us that all Scripture was about love? Well, John told us that. God is love. That's what he is. That's what the Let's do our confessional standards. Our confessional standards, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the, the catechism question, what do the scriptures principally teach? Y'all are all here on a Reformation Sunday night, but I won't put you to the test. The scriptures principally teach what we are to believe, what man is to believe about God and the duties required of man. Well, here we can map that on to Second Peter, to the testimony of scripture. What the scriptures principally teach is that God is love, Therefore, what duties does he require of you? 
to love. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, will, and strength. And love one another as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, Paul. Paul, that great theologian that generated the Reformation, if Luther is going to put anything, uh, if, if he's going to attribute the Reformation to any one theologian, is going to be to Paul. It is Paul that woke Luther up, that showed him the true doctrines of salvation and justification. It's Paul that gives us the heritage that we uh, so value of justification by faith alone, of the way in which the church works, the gifts that we are, you know, the priesthood of all believers. Paul tells us about the gifts of service that the church has been given to minister to the body. It's through Paul we get this great ecclesiological framework for thinking about how our polity is supposed to work and how we are to benefit one another as priests who serve the king. And what does Paul say? The spiritual gifts, they will pass away. Knowledge, oh, Paul, don't do it. Knowledge, oh, Paul, theologians like myself should tremble at these words. Knowledge, it will cease. Faith, hope, and love will abide, and the greatest of these is love. The church is given testimony about the love of God for his world and the call to love the world as God loves it. And that's how we protect ourselves against our enemies. That's how we preserve the purity and peace of the church when there are no apostles to tell us what to do. That's how we face the gates of hell and yet, not only survive, but flourish. The gates of hell have nothing against love. We, in the Reformed tradition, we're known for many great things. We're known for our theological depth. We're known for our ecclesiological breadth and, and robustness. We're, we're known for our zeal. We're zealous for so many things. We're zealous for apologetics and theology and for evangelism and for missions. I mean, the Reformed Church, we are at the peak of all of those types of, we, you know, uh, supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and steadfastness and self-control and all of these things we're known for, but are we known for love? Peter gives us a path to that, by the way. These things are stepping stones. If you find yourself and your church failing to love neighbor as self, if we're resorting to the ways of the world when it comes to justice or equity or faithfulness instead of the self-sacrificial power of love, we have a path for that. Go back to the scriptures, to the seedbed of faith, we read, we meditate, and as we read and meditate on the key, on what we have been given, we fall deeper in love with Christ, the fruit of which, the inevitable, the imperishable fruit of which 
is love for one another. Sola Scriptura. What a great watchword of the Reformation. Let's use Scripture the way Peter would have us to use Scripture, to meditate upon it as the word of our Lord, which cannot but flourish even in a world that hates us, to which we respond consistently, inevitably, eternally with love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us your word, and we thank you that at bottom it is so simple. These two simple truths, that you, our God, are love, and because you have loved the world, you have sent your Son. Because you have loved the world, you are patiently waiting so that all might reach repentance. Because you have loved the world, you have called us as your church to love one another and to proclaim the love of Christ to all who will hear. We pray that we would do that with zeal and increasing gladness as we wait for the coming of our Lord and the dissolution of all things. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand.